ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the gun rack, Sonoran Desert Institute School of Firearms Technology's official podcast. I'm Drew Poplin, your co-host, and today we are flying solo, going full Jason Derulo today. Um, no Joey Upper today, so I will be your guide through the Battle of Blackstock's Plantation, or Blackstock's Farm, as it's also known. Very excited to get into all this content with you today. Just got back from SDI Summit last week, which was basically a get-together between all the full-time employees at SDI, and uh, really awesome experience. I'd never been to Vegas before. So maybe next week we get Joey back on the show. We can talk a little bit about that experience. But before we get into the battle of black stocks, are you interested in learning more about firearms? If so, why not consider SDI? SDI, Sonoran Desert Institute, is an online school that helps students learn the skills and techniques they'll need to be successful in the firearms and also the unmanned technology industries. Unmanned technology essentially is dealing with drones and drone technology. Fascinating growing industry. I was able to learn a little bit more about it this last week. Anyway, we're a firearms podcast. So let's talk about what SDI offers in firearms technology. We offer the Associate of Science and Firearms Technology program as well as the Certificate in Firearms Technology Gunsmithing. SDI is accredited by the Distance Education Accrediting Commission, a.k.a. the DEAC. If you want to find out more information about SDI, please head to our website at www.sdi.edu. Now, we introduced a segment last week uh, called Hot Takes. So I guess this week I'll go ahead and give mine. And, you know, I'm a Southern boy. And I'm sure many of you that are listening might also be what you would consider Southern boys, you know, country boys. So I know that this is probably going to upset many of you. So, you know, maybe those with weak constitutions, if you have kids or anyone listening that you feel like shouldn't hear this hot take, maybe go ahead and skip ahead a minute and a half. But I got to get this off my chest. And I'm going to get my Southern citizen card revoked for saying this but it is the truth and it's that cornbread is overrated yeah i think i think people here especially where i'm at people worship cornbread like like it's gold like it's manna from heaven but in reality it's just an okay bread Uh, but for all the acclaim that cornbread gets i feel like there's other breads that deserve so they claim just one example being pumpernickel bread. Pumpernickel bread is better, in my opinion, than cornbread, especially when it comes out nice and warm. You put the butter on it. I don't know. Cornbread to me just has the consistency of cake, but it's corn flavored. But having said that before, you know, put your pitchforks away. Uh, having said that, I'm open to the idea that maybe one day 
I'll grow up and enjoy it. But that day has not occurred in nearly 10,950 days thus far. So maybe in about 21,000 days, I'll see the light. <laughs> um, well, if you're still listening to this podcast, let's go ahead and get into the Battle of Black Stocks. Just want to share my sources for this information real quick. A big one I consulted was Dr. Paul T. Carter's video on YouTube on the Battle of Black Stocks. I also consulted the American Battlefield Trust and the Journal of the American Revolution. So as you can see in the title, this is part five of our Southern Battles of the American Revolution series. If you have not listened to parts one through four, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those either you know, before you continue on this episode or afterwards, uh, just to kind of fill in some of the blanks with some of the contextual information. The first couple of episodes have been really heavy on that. I'm kind of now, as we're getting towards near the end of this series, I kind of want to strip back the time I spend talking about the context of the Southern theater during the American Revolution. Having said that, I'm still going to give a little bit. So where does Blackstock's fall in relation to like some of the other battles that we've talked about thus far? May 29th, 1780 was the Battle of Waxhaws. About a couple months later, August 16th, 1780 was the Battle of Camden. Then three days later, you had the Battle of Musgrove Mills. Then let's jump ahead to October of 1780. October 7th was the Battle of King's Mountain, which we just got done talking about. October 14th, 1780, Nathaniel Green was named commander of the Southern Campaign. And January 17th, 1781 was the Battle of Calpins. Now, Blackstock's falls in between the time that Nathaniel Green was named commander of the Southern Campaign, though it took him a while to make it down here and for that whole thing to actually be realized. And the Battle of Calpins. So the Battle of Blackstock's happens November 20th, 1780. And during this battle, it would be a face-off between two brigadier generals. It would be a face-off between one Thomas Sumter, representing the Patriot side, and, of course, the very easy-to-hate British general Bannister, Tarleton. So let's talk about Thomas Sumter. Sumter was a military leader like Francis Marion and Andrew Pickens. And basically, he led militias, and they were seeing uh, particular success, definitely more so than the Continental Army in the South. Early on in the Southern Campaign, you'd see he had attacks at Hanging Rock and Rocky Mount, which are both in the northern section of South Carolina. Sumter also had a particular reason to have beef with Bannister Tarleton. If you'll remember back when we talked about Waxhaws a little bit in our background episode, You'll remember that Bannister Tarleton chased Buford, uh, Buford and his men after Charleston. If you look at the map, it, it was quite, quite a long chase. But on that particular chase, Bannister Tarleton's men, they took a quick break from the chase to rest. Yeah, of course, Bannister Tarleton never truly rested. There were too many things to burn. So while he was nearby, Tarleton had the Brigadier General Thomas Sumter's house which they, you know, they were resting nearby, they had his plantation burned to the ground and looted. Sumter definitely had a personal vendetta against Tarleton, but that's not all. See, 
the battle of Blackstocks was not the first time that Sumter and Tarleton would face off on the field of battle against each other. They actually encountered each other at the Battle of Fishing Creek on August 18th, 1780. August 18th, if you want to take note of that, was just two days after the Battle of Camden and one day before the Battle of Musgrove Mills. And to be frank, what happened at the Battle of Fishing Creek was that Thomas Sumter got whooped. Without going into all the details, it's safe to say that the Americans lost a lot that day. Over 150 men in that battle for the Patriots were killed, and around 300 men surrendered. Furthermore, the British regained many of their prisoners, and they were able to retake some of the wagon trains that was, were filled with supplies that Sumter had previously stolen from the British. But meanwhile, Sumter, which it's interesting to know, a lot of people claimed that he was actually asleep when Tarleton attacked. He, in the midst of all this chaos, he managed to escape north to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm not saying him and a couple men. He escaped alone. And so as far as defeats go, that has to be one of the more humiliating ones I've ever heard of. Definitely has echoes of what happened a couple days before at the Battle of Camden with Horatio Gates. But Thomas Sumter was not so willing to let that be the end of things. Now, despite what it may have appeared to be, things were not going perfectly for the Brits. They were still having to deal with the different pesky militias led by Sumter and Francis Marion and you know some of those leaders. So they were still having to deal with them, all the while having to negotiate the rugged South Carolina terrain as well as disease. In fact, uh, more British died to two different diseases during the war than the Americans did. Also, speaking of South Carolina and its terrain and just, you know, the environment, there was also in South Carolina, you have three parallel lateral rivers in South Carolina. So you have the Broad, the PD, and the Catawba. And these three rivers, uh, they were able to kind of constrain the British attacks. And because of these rivers, it kind of prevented the British from making these large, wide movements that could have ultimately allowed them to flank the Patriots. So it was, a, it, it was difficult terrain and it was a diff, difficult environment, both geographically and, um, I guess, politically. You know, we've talked many times about how, uh, how brutal and how divisive the war was in the South in particular. Uh, and plus, you have that South Carolina heat. And trust me, as someone that's nearby, it is no joke. But still, General Cornwallis began moving the British northward. Uh, you might recall that Cornwallis, we talked a little bit about it in, I think it was part three, our prelude to King's Mountain. You might recall that Cornwallis moved in three columns, and that consisted of his main column, there was a column led by Bannister Tarleton, and then the furthest west column was led by Patrick Ferguson. Of course, our last episode in the series showcased what happened to Patrick Ferguson's column. So Cornwallis was eventually forced to pause the advance. Meanwhile, on the Patriot side of things, it, it was still looking somewhat bleak. Despite King's Mountain, there were many who were skeptical about the Patriots' chances of winning the war. However, there was still a fighting spirit among many participating. Uh, Francis Marion, for example, was causing plenty of havoc in the area between Camden and Charleston. Thomas Sumter, for his part, managed to gather more men 
for the Patriot cause. So he was re-upping, reloading with more men. So Cornwallis, who was still waiting on reinforcements to arrive, that way he could continue with his northern advance, he decided that both Francis Marion and Thomas Sumter, they needed to be dealt with in the meantime. So he took two of his most aggressive officers. So he had Bannister Tarleton, of course. He sent Tarleton to take out Francis Marion. And at the same time, he sent Major James Weems. It's spelled W-E-M-Y-S-S, but it's pronounced Weems. So he sent Weems to deal with Sumter. Now, Weems and Tarleton were two fruits from the same tree. Weems was just as cruel as Tarleton was, and it's viewed by many historians as being the second most hated British general, the first obviously being Tarleton, in the war. Now, I don't want to spend much time on Weems, but just know he was not a great dude. So, on November 9th, Weems found Thomas Sumter at Fish Dam Ford. Despite some mismanagement by Sumter, basically just where he had his troops resting, the attack was repelled and Weems was actually injured and captured. So now Cornwallis, you know, he's growing more and more frustrated each day. And upon hearing the news of Fishdam Ford, his concern started to shift to Fort 96, which is a name that keeps popping up. I'm starting to get the feeling we're going to need to talk about the history of Fort 96 because it keeps popping up in just about every episode we've done in the research. So, you know, I'll ponder that idea. But anyway, uh, he sends two dispatchers to Tarleton with orders to switch his mission from Marion to Sumter because he was worried that Sumter might be might be trying to make a attack or a raid on Fort 96. So Tarleton, he got the orders, he hurried west, and after picking up two battalions sent by Cornwallis, he made camp near Indian Creek. Meanwhile, Thomas Sumter's force was just south of the Ennery River, unaware of the fact that Tarleton was now incredibly close. And we don't know this for certain, but it is thought that Sumter was preparing to attack Fort 96. He ended up getting uh, some intel from an informant about Tarleton's presence. It's like, hey, he's super close. So Sumter was forced to scrap these plans on 96 and move across the Ennery River and head northwest towards the Tiger River, eventually designed to make a defensive position at Blackstock's plantation. Tarleton, who always loved a good chase, decided to go after Sumter, so he rode to Sumter's location, and he, you know, one of the things that keeps popping up is his, I guess, eagerness is a more of a positive way. Some might say his brashness, whatever, but he loved a good chase and he was not afraid to leave his infantry like some of the sl slower segments of his force so like the infantry and the artillery behind but him and his dragoons tried to catch up oh by the way you know how i mentioned that thomas sumter was able to recruit more militia and that he did a pretty good job with it well i wasn't lying uh, sumter managed to gather nearly 1000 men which is a pretty insane number to think about especially for this time. Uh, so he did very well. Tarleton, meanwhile, having left his infantry and artillery, was riding with a force of 170 cavalry, about 180 mounted infantry soldiers. And they were making their way to Blackstocks. And Blackstocks uh, would be a great location for Sumter to choose to have his defensive position in. 
Yeah, I think the way Battlefields.org describes it, I think is uh, really good. So I'm just going to quote them. So this is from Battlefields.org. The Blackstock's house, barns, and outbuildings were log built, which provided unchinked openings through which men could fire. Situated on a sharp hill, they commanded a 50-acre pasture that sloped down to a shallow stream in the farm fields. Behind the house, the land pitched sharply to the fast-running Tiger River on the north and northeast. About 200 yards to the right of the house lay a long ridge covered with a thick growth of hardwood and pine. To the left, in front of the outbuildings at the top of the pasture, was a strong rail fence about one quarter of a mile long, made of heavy notched saplings. This fence formed one side of a lane leading to the house. Sumter told the troops to take post in and about the buildings, unquote. Yeah, so if you can visualize what this looked like, if you can't, go look it up. So you have this house on top of a hill with a strong fence on its left and thick wood to its right, and behind it, you had the Tiger River running. So really solid positioning. In fact, Patriot militiaman Joseph Hart is quoted as saying this, quote, The place Sumter selected was admirably chosen, and in a military point of view, could be scarcely be equated in the vicinity. Covered by the woods and supported right and left by the hill and trees, he was able to place his untrained men in a position that would give them confidence. The gentle ascent immediately in his front would prevent an advantageous charge from the enemy, unquote. Thank you for that, Joseph. Let's fast forward. On November 20th, 1780, the battle would finally arrive. In the meantime, Sumter had also placed a small contingent of men uh, in the southwestern corner of Blackstock's field. So along the fence, sort of where it really started. When Tarleton's party of men arrived, uh, this picket of men uh, were able to alert Sumter. Uh, of course, Tarleton had no problem dealing with them. They scattered quite easily. But you know, it was really just meant to raise an alarm, which it did effectively. And Sumter was able to form his lines just in time. I believe I was watching the Paul T. Carter video, and uh, he mentioned someone saying that if it would have taken them two or three minutes longer to form that line, they would have lost. So good job getting everyone in position. So Tarleton, being able to easily disperse his picket, moved south to observe Sumter's positions. And what he saw was he saw the enemy's position was strong. Uh, now, we've talked many times about Bannister Tarleton on this podcast. Now, what do you think he would do? Well, he's about to surprise you a little bit. So Tarleton shockingly decided to dismount his 63rd Regiment of Foot. And then he decided he was going to wait for his infantry and artillery to arrive, which, yeah, if, if you've read anything about Bannister Tarleton, it, it is somewhat surprising that he decided, uh, I'll wait for more men. And it's at this point, things get a tad confusing as to, you know, the order of events. So I'm, I've done my best. But Thomas Sumter knew Bannister Tarleton's nature, just like we know it today, and that if he was enticed enough that Tarleton just could not resist waiting and attacking. He wanted to make Tarleton fight. So he sent a small detachment of men down the hill to attack the 63rd. 
Meanwhile, he sent cavalry to ride around the left flank of the British line and attack the British Legion de Grunes. And he also sent Colonel Elijah Clark to lead his men around the right flank of the British line and attack the 63rd from the rear. And if his mission was to get Tarleton's men into the fight, he did a good job of it. He, he did definitely forced the issue. So that small contingent of men coming downhill, uh, the British 63rd was able to easily cause them to retreat back up the hill. So the 63rd mounted their bayonets and said, hey, we're going to do a bayonet charge to try to get them. And they caught up to them. However, they got too close to the Patriots that were hiding in the buildings. And so the Americans just opened fire and, uh, yeah, it was not a great situation for the 63rd to be in. Meanwhile, you had the Patriot Cavalry that was trying to go on the left, the left flank of the British, and attack the Dragoons. And they managed to sneak up on them because um, you know, most everyone's attention was on everything happening with the 63rd. So they got close enough to the Dragoons to attack. And it was effective briefly, but eventually they were pushed back. And meanwhile, on the other side, you had that Colonel Clark, who was leading a group of men, and they were attempting to flank the British 63rd. They would sneak very, very slowly, undetected, but maybe perhaps a bit too slow because by the time they arrived, there wasn't really anything to do other than watch the 63rd's bayonet charge because they had they didn't have an enemy to flank at that point. So seeing how the 63rd went into this trap, Tarleton wrote in with his dragoons to save what was left of them. And the Americans kept raining you know bullets you know raining lead onto him so uh you had this space this field many dragoons fell and this battlefield was now littered with the bodies of horses and of men things would be a little bit back and forth for a while uh, from my understanding it was a pretty long battle but towards the end thomas sumter wanted to get a better view of things he was made um Someone, uh, one of the sources I was reading, I remember there was something to saying that Sumter was the only man more reckless than Tarleton. So Tar uh, Sumter wanted to get a better view, but he inadvertently got a little too close right as the 63rd was firing a return volley. Uh, and Sumter was hit. Accounts say he was hit with five buckshot to the chest and a six that chipped his spine lodging in his left shoulder. So he wasn't doing well. Obviously, he was forced to leave the battle. He left control of the militia army to John Twiggs, who was a senior officer. And eventually, Tarleton realized, hey, I need to get my men out here. So Tarleton was forced to retreat about two miles away. He actually planned to launch another attack the next day. But when they arrived, Twiggs had already taken the militia away during the night. And so that was that. That was the battle. Uh, let's talk a little numbers real quick. So for the Americans, they only had about three men die, and there was another 40 that were wounded. Though it is interesting to note that according to, it, I'm pretty sure it's just one source, but it keeps getting quoted. But it's interesting to note that 50 Americans were supposedly captured. Uh, however, it should also be noted that Tarleton didn't note this in any of his reports. So this could just be BS, but you know, who really knows? Speaking of things that we don't really know, there is a dispute between the British and American accounts on how many casualties the British suffered. 
Now, Tarleton claimed that only 51 of his men were either killed or wounded. However, an American contemporary account reported something a lot higher, claimed the British to have had 92 men killed and around 75 to 100 men wounded. Tarleton, for his part, you know, who before this had a bit of an aura of invincibility, uh, would end up stretching the truth to Cornwallis in his reports about this battle. Not only did he seemingly fudge the numbers of his dead, but he also reported that the British had actually been victorious. After all, since the Americans were eventually dispersed, he played up the fact that uh, Thomas Sumter had been wounded and believed that he would not be an issue to the British any longer. Now, as for Sumter, who was <laughs> badly wounded during the battle, uh, he would manage to survive not only the gunshot, but the prospect of late 18th century surgery. Unfortunately, due to his lengthy absence, his militia ultimately disbanded. However, Sumter himself would rejoin the fight in 1781. After the war, he would enjoy a career in politics, serving in the House of Representatives for two terms, and he even had a short stint filling in as a senator. And unbelievably, Thomas Sumter would live to the age of 97, which 97, that's impressive today, but it's hard to think about you know back then someone living that long. So who won the Battle of Blackstocks? Well, Tarleton would probably claim that while that Sumter was sidelined, uh, Blackstock's plantation was taken the next day and the militia was dispersed. And while this is true, I do believe that this was a Patriot victory. After all, Tarleton's mission was not to take over Blackstock's. It was to destroy the pest that was Thomas Sumter. And sure, he did knock him out of the fight temporarily, but he did neutralize him. At the end of the day, the British did have to retreat. They, you know, they had to get out of there, uh, even if it was just for the night. Also, if you look at the casualty counts, I mean, of course, it depends on who you consult, but in either case, the British suffered much heavier casualties in the fight than the Americans did. And most people uh, today, most scholars, consider Blackstock's to be a Patriot victory. There is also that. Tarleton would say of Sumter at Blackstock's that Sumter, quote, fought like a Gamecock, unquote. Now, if you're confused what a Gamecock is, uh, Gamecock is essentially a ticked-off rooster, one that was born and bred for basically a life of chicken fighting. And if any of you are familiar with collegiate athletics, the light bulb's probably clicking on for you because the University of South Carolina, they would hear about what Tarleton say of Sumter and then Sumter's you know reputation and his nickname. And they decide they like the sound of that. So they would adopt that as their mascot and they became the University of South Carolina Gamecocks. And lastly, I want you to think about how the battle played out, uh, particularly in the beginning with Sumter being able to draw in Tarleton while his full force was catching up and ultimately leading Tarleton's force into a trap. Now, does this sound even vaguely familiar to anyone? Because there would be a similar strategy that one Daniel Morgan would employ only a few months later to give Tarleton perhaps his worst defeat of his career at the Battle of Calpins. So, for now, that was the Battle of Blackstocks. Thank you, everybody, for 
listening and uh, uh, putting up with my Jason Derillo comments in the beginning, my controversial opinion about cornbread. I hope you found this episode enjoyable. I hope you were able to learn a couple things. Um, once again, I want to thank Lonnie Anders for mentioning the Battle of Black Stocks because I was not familiar with it going into this series. And he su suggested we talk about the Battle of Musgrove Mills and uh, the Battle of Black Stocks. And so, Lonnie, thank you for that. Uh, so this has just been, you know, this has been informative and educational for me as well. And yeah, that's oftentimes what we do on the gun rack. We're learning together, which is really, really cool. I think it's an awesome dynamic to have with you guys. Anyway, that has been the gun rack. Folks, have fun, be safe, and we will see you at the range. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.